When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about the national challenge to Trump's national emergency with Dahlia Lithwick of Slate. And we'll also look at California's resistance to Donald Trump. Manuel Pastor will explain the past, the present, and the future of the fights over immigration and climate justice between the biggest state and the worst president. But first... Naomi Klein on the Green New Deal. She's an award-winning journalist, a syndicated columnist, and, of course, author of the bestsellers No Is Not Enough, This Changes Everything, The Shock Doctrine, and No Logo, books that change the lives of a lot of us. She's a member of the board of directors for the International Climate Action Group 350.org. She's also senior correspondent for The Intercept, She's a writing fellow for the Type Media Center. We used to call it the Nation Institute. And she's a contributor to The Nation magazine. Her recent articles have appeared in The New York Times, The New Yorker, The Guardian, and The London Review of Books. Naomi Klein, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be with you again. Well, how would you describe the Green New Deal resolution that was announced by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey? Well, it is a a sweeping plan to radically transform how we get energy, move ourselves around, live in cities, grow our food, and it puts justice at the center, justice broadly defined as everything from racial justice to making sure no worker is left behind, battling inequality, battling poverty. So it's really about multitasking. It's about understanding that we are in a time of multiple overlapping crises, but we are also on an incredibly tight deadline when it comes to lowering greenhouse gas emissions in time to prevent truly catastrophic warming. And that means that if we are going to get emissions down as quickly as we do in order to bring people along with these changes, there have to be benefits in the here and now in terms of the kinds of jobs that are provided uh, and the justice that comes through. You say the Green New Deal is not a question that will be settled through elections alone. What do you mean? Well, in terms of winning the power to introduce a package as ambitious as as is being outlined in the resolution, the only real historical precedent is the original New Deal. And the political dynamics that produced the original New Deal were not 
a benevolent politician handing it down from up on high from the goodness of his heart. Absolutely, it mattered to have FDR instead of Hoover in power, who was open to these kinds of transformations, but it mattered even more to have an incredibly organized uh, population, which was flexing its muscles in every conceivable way from, in the 1930s, from you know, sit-down strikes in, in auto plants to shutting down the ports on the West Coast to shutting down entire cities with general strikes and having you know more radical political voices who were calling for policies more radical than the New Deal, uh, like a truly cooperative economy. So all of that created the context in which FDR was able to sell the New Deal to elites, certainly begrudgingly received by them, but as a compromise because the alternative seemed to be political revolution. So the only way that something like this happens is if there, it is accompanied by a huge grassroots mobilization where you know every workplace, every sector, um, every movement is asking, what would a New Deal mean for us? What would it mean for our sector? What would it mean in our workplace? What would it mean for the groups that we represent? And really making it their own. And I think one of the really great things about the resolution is that it's a lot more decentralized in terms of how it's proposing to roll out than the original New Deal. It is all about community empowerment and decentralization and calls for uh, this kind of organizing. So, you know, I don't think it's only movements and I don't think it's only politicians. I think it is only both that will make this possible. So uh, it's going to take a hell of a lot of grassroots organizing, uh, mobilizing all of these sectors to really believe that the New Deal is going to make their lives better, and that being coupled with politicians running at every level of government, including including for president, with a promise to enact this on day one. Let me underline what you said, that building political power is about changing the calculus of what is possible. That's really a big obstacle. We saw that in a column by Gail Collins in the New York Times last week. She argued the Green New Deal is way too far-reaching and that we should focus our efforts on uh, more manageable things like building more electric generating capacity from solar and wind. It's not exactly opposing the Green New Deal, but it's certainly not helping. Right. I mean, there is this idea that a more kind of uh, incrementalist or just climate-focused policy that doesn't talk about fighting inequality, that doesn't talk about a huge jobs program, that doesn't talk about health care for all, would make it more sellable. But what's amazing to me is that what's actually stood in the way of strong climate policy in the past has been that, you know, in times of uh, real economic stress, like the ones we've been living in, people consistently rank climate, even people who care about climate change, or even people who vote Democrat, if you ask them to rank the issues that they care about, climate change will always rank below health care, below jobs. Um, you know, often it ranks last on the list of political priorities. And that's why politicians always feel that it's um, sacrificeable. I mean, Obama did that, right? He, he looked at the polls and he prioritized health care. And, you know, when that led to a huge amount of, of pushback, he really didn't spend any political capital trying to get the totally inadequate cap-and-trade policy through. So this idea that somehow climate change policy is more practical, more pragmatic, if it's delinked 
from economic and social justice is actually not true. Linking it to, these are more popular policies, actually. And then the other reason, the other thing that stands in the way when politicians actually do introduce climate policies is often that if they don't prioritize justice, they're actively unjust. And if we want an example of what that looks like, we can look to Emmanuel Macron in France, where Macron, this very neoliberal president, introduces a tax cut for the very, very rich at the same time as he introduces a carbon pricing scheme that increases the cost of life for working people. And lo and behold, then you have an uprising and indeed rioting in the streets with the Gilets Jaunes movement, the Yellow Vest movement, precisely because there is this split where, as, as one of the protesters put it, a split between the politicians who care about the end of the world when we have to care about the end of the month, right? Yeah. So I think the brilliance, really, of a Green New Deal framework is that it doesn't ask people to choose. It says, we have a plan for you to express the fact that actually we all care about the end of the world. We, I mean, we, we all care about uh, the life support systems that we all depend on, but we by necessity also care about the end of the month. So how do we design policies that, that simultaneously lower emissions and lower that economic strain? And that's exactly what they're trying to do. Let's talk for just a minute about the opposition to a Green New Deal. Of course, there's the climate change deniers like the president and the whole Republican Party. I was a little surprised to learn from your your piece in The Intercept about the Laborers International Union. I didn't know about them. So there's been a sector of the trade union movement with Leuna, as you mentioned, who represent construction workers, but also some of the other unions representing the building trades, who have been very pro-Trump and have been dividing the labor movement really consistently over these pipeline fights. They came out very strongly against the unions that had supported the movement against the Keystone XL pipeline. They were irate that parts of the labor movement, like National Nurses United, like the transit workers unions, like SEIU, parts of SEIU, had come out strongly against the pipeline. And they really presented this as a breach of the principle of solidarity, because these are jobs that their workers would have, their members would have benefited from. Then it got even uglier in the fight against the Dakota Access Pipeline and Standing Rock, where even after the most you know, extraordinary, brutal repression and the attack dogs and the tanks and you know, so many protesters being injured, Leona came out uh, attacking the demonstrators and attacking the unions that were standing with them. And then on Trump's first day on the job, the Monday after inauguration, they dutifully went in for a photo op, a guided tour of the White House, uh, announced that Trump's inauguration speech was a great victory for working men and women. And it was, you know, specifically because a couple of his first acts were to, you know, sign executive orders um, pushing through the Dakota Access Pipeline and the Keystone Pipeline. So this is a real split. And so far, they have been, you know, this 
relatively small block within the labor movement has been really on the attack. And what I argue in my piece is that it's time for the rest of the labor movement to fight back, to take them on. Um, It's time for their own members to fight back and I think vote out these bosses who are not representing them and are in fact standing with industry and are not standing with workers because the Green New Deal, you know, they've come out attacking the Green New Deal, which has some of the best uh, provisions for specifically union protection, a federal jobs guarantee that would ensure that any worker who lost their job in one of these trades as we decarbonize is able to get a job at the same salary and benefits level, which has been something that's really been missing from the discussion of green jobs up till now, is that we don't just need any old jobs. We need jobs that are as good as the jobs that are being lost in the fossil fuel sector. Um, And so this is really taking that head on. And so if Leuna is still attacking it anyway, then really they, they should be treated as an arm of the oil and gas industry, which is what they have become. One of the unions that you really like is the Canadian Union of Postal Workers. They've made a wonderful proposal. Tell us about that. I think you and I have talked about before that I've been involved in a a project in Canada called the LEAP Manifesto, which is our people's version of a Green New Deal that came out of a gathering of social movement leaders and trade union leaders that came up with a plan to to do exactly what, 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 what is being attempted with the Green New Deal to get off fossil fuels in a huge hurry, but to put justice at the center and labor protections at the center. And after the LEAP Manifesto came out, our team worked with that union at their request to come up with a plan to apply the principles of the LEAP Manifesto to the post office, which at that time was facing a very real prospect of being privatized and and, and, and radically downsized. And so rather than just saying, well, we want to keep things as they are, despite the fact that how we tend to send mail has been you know, radically changed by Amazon and by courier services. Um, they said, we want, we want to change this service that has been at the center of communities for so long. And we want to now be at the center of a transition uh, off of fossil fuels. So we want to have postal banking. We want to have solar panels on the rooftops of every post office. We want a charging station outside. We want a fleet of vehicles that are all electric and all made domestically. And we want to not just be delivering the mail, but be delivering uh, locally grown produce, checking in on the elderly, being part of the caring economy. It's really a radical plan that's being championed by you know, a, a really unabashedly progressive union. And that's the kind of thing that coming to what we, where we started, that's what it means to make the Green Deal your own, right? That's what we need to be happening from teachers' unions, nursing unions, we need every, every organized workplace to be getting together and imagining what their workplace would look like if they took rapid decarbonization seriously and you know, how could it improve lives, how could it lead to a fair economy. And you know, we see right away that it certainly is in conflict with the logic of austerity that so many of these workplaces you know, have been facing. Naomi Klein wrote about the Green New Deal for The Intercept. Naomi, thanks so much. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much, John. Take care. Now 
it's time to talk about Trump's declaration of a national emergency so he can find the money to build that wall of his. Of course, we all agree that there is no national emergency at the border. Even Trump said, quote, I don't need to do this. And we all agree that after Congress had refused his request to fund the wall, it's wrong for him to seize money that Congress has appropriated for other purposes. But is it illegal? Is it unconstitutional? For some answers, we turn to Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate, and she hosts the podcast Amicus. She's also written for the New York Times, the American Prospect, the Washington Post, and the Nation. And we saw her last week on MSNBC with Rachel Maddow. Dahlia Lithwick, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, let's start with the big lawsuit filed Monday by 16 states led by California. They sued Trump in federal district court in San Francisco, arguing that the president does not have the power to divert funds for constructing a wall along the Mexican border because it is Congress that controls spending. And that's pretty much what the ACLU says. It's an unconstitutional usurpation of Congress's spending power by the president. What do you say? I think that if you want to just look at sort of perfect brass tacks constitutional arguments, that's the argument to make, right? Article 1, Section 9 specifies that, quote, no money shall be drawn from the Treasury but in consequence of appropriations made by law. So I think that what the California and the 15 other states, what they're trying to do is just say, fundamentally, this is simply a separation of powers problem. You can talk about the scope of, you know, emergency powers under the National Emergencies Act, but I think that the ACLU and the states are trying to make an argument that doesn't get down into the weeds of, is this an emergency? Is this not an emergency? They just want to say, structurally speaking, if the president can be told no by Congress, and appropriate the money anyway by saying, I'm just going to declare an emergency. That is, in a foundational way, anathema to whatever separation of powers intended. Well, of course, we want to get down into the weeds. The weediest part is the question of standing. Who has standing to tell the courts they've been damaged by this action and therefore they need relief from the courts seems like the people who clearly have standing are not the people of California. I mean, their claim is their tax dollars are being a, uh, spent for a purpose that their representatives didn't choose. The people who really have standing are the Texas landowners whose land will be taken to build this. And there's a separate lawsuit filed by public citizen challenging the seizure of their lands, which they anticipate. What do you think of that argument? I think so far the strongest case for standing is folks whose land is going to be seized by virtue of eminent domain, right? The takings power of the federal government. And so those three landowners in Texas who are represented in the public citizen suit have an incredibly strong claim. Now, I don't think it's actually true that the state's don't have standing to sue. More and more in recent years, the courts have said they can't sue on behalf of any old injury to their citizens. But when there is a, an economic, a profound economic injury to the citizens of that state, they have been deemed to have standing. And 
at least in the case that was filed by the states, we have California saying, look, there is emergency relief fund, drug interdiction fund that is being taken away from our coffers. We have the state of Colorado, which has lots of military installations saying we actually are going to lose substantial money that should be diverted toward the military. That's what it was appropriated for. And in those cases, when it's not completely speculative, the courts have been apt to say, yes, there is standing. And I think the other folks we should probably just note that that probably do have standing is the House Democrats, who I think do have standing because the House Republicans were deemed to have standing in 2014 when they challenged the cost-sharing provisions in Obamacare. So I think there are some groups that have some decent claims to standing. It's a problem, but I don't know that it's a deal-breaking problem. And what do you think of the argument that the court should declare it's not an emergency because nobody other than Trump seems to believe an emergency exists? Well, I think that's the place where you're going to get into very rough sledding. I think that what Trump is staking everything on is the old 1976 statute that they're leaning on, National Emergencies Act, 50 U.S.C. 1601. They're saying, look, that doesn't define emergency. It doesn't quantify or qualify what an emergency is. It essentially leaves to the president's complete discretion to say that this is an emergency. And they're making the argument that don't tell us that four seconds later in the Rose Garden, Trump said it wasn't an emergency. Don't tell us that his claims are all countermanded by, you know, his Justice Department's own data. We don't care. We're calling it an emergency. That's what the statute says. The real problem that they're going to get into isn't under the National Emergencies Act. It's that they tagged it to statutes that don't really map onto what Trump is trying to do. They tacked it to statutes. This is very interesting. What are the statutes you're talking about? Well, this is the probably the most important piece of this is that they can't just say there's an emergency so everybody look between the sofa cushions and find money. They had to take money from other appropriations. And what they did was, first and foremost, right, they took a, a chunk of money from the Department of Treasury Forfeiture Fund. They took $100 million from that. They took a bunch of money from Title 10, Section 284, counter-drug activities. Those things, they could have taken money from those buckets without declaring a state of emergency. The third bucket, they needed to declare a state of emergency. And that's, I think, going to become the sticky wicket here. That's USC Section 2808. It says, I'm just going to read it to you in quotes. In the event of a declaration of war or the declaration by the president of a national emergency in accordance with the National Emergencies Act, right, check, we've got that, provisions that that require use of the armed forces, the Secretary of Defense, without regard to any other provision of law, may undertake military construction projects and may authorize the secretaries of the military departments to undertake military construction projects not otherwise authorized by law that are necessary to support such use of the armed forces. That sounds like a lot of gobbledygook. Yes, but (laughs) there is no reason to believe that this appropriation is necessary to the use of the armed forces. It 
it's not a great fit. It means the president essentially has to show a court that this emergency, A, requires the use of the military. That's not clear at all, right? Usually border patrol functions are civilian, not military propositions. And he has to show that the, the military needs to construction of this wall and that it is to su- support the safety of the military. All of those things are huge stretches, dragging the military into something that is essentially a civilian border issue and then saying we need to build this wall to protect our soldiers. That doesn't fit. Of course, the Justice Department always makes the same argument. Every president has made this argument. The courts owe the president absolute deference in matters of national security. And the courts, I'm sorry to say, often give the president absolute deference on matters of national security. I think you're absolutely right. There is a long-standing legal presumption. I think the court in Boumediene, which was one of the... Um, the habeas cases, the court famously warned, quote, neither the members of this court nor most federal judges begin their day with briefings that may describe new and serious threats to our nation and its people. Now, there's one important caveat to that, and that is the famous steel seizures case, right? When Truman tried to seize the steel mills, the court said no. And you Remember probably that the court in this famous concurrence by Justice Jackson set out this three-part test for when we just defer to the president's claims that it's national security. And they said, when Congress has aligned itself with president, the president's powers at its highest, when Congress is silent, we're in sort of a twilight zone, says the court, when the Congress has expressly said no. And the, and the president does it anyhow, then we're in a place where we can say as the court, no, no, <laughs> this isn't right. And I think that that sort of tripartite test has been the test. So here you have a situation. I mean, it's harder to think of a better situation where Congress said no. They said no a week before. And for the court to then say, oh, we're going to act as though Congress hasn't spoken at all, I think puts a thumb on the scale that you don't defer absolutely. But I do think just for what it's worth, when the Trump decided the, tra- uh, when, I'm sorry, when the Supreme Court decided the travel ban case, right, finally, after two years in the lower courts, they made exactly the judgment that you just stipulated, which is we're not going to put ourselves in the business of deciding whether the president was lying or creating pretext or whether there was this racial animus that was hidden. We're just going to make a judgment about the office of the president and we're going to defer. And so you are absolutely right to say if the court wants to take that route, if the court wants to blinker itself to everything that you and I know and just say it is our judgment that we don't second-guess the president on matters of national security, then you are absolutely right. There's an easy way to get there. There's a long tradition, and that's what they did in the travel ban case. Well, if we're going to talk about everything that you and I know about the president, we really have to say something about the Rose Garden speech where Trump announced his national emergency. We're missing something big if we treat only the constitutional issues raised by that speech. Dahlia Lithwick, what are we missing? Look, we're used to the president 
kind of fabricating and um, tooting his own horn and, you know, saying things that he then contradicts seconds later. We're used to all that. But by any metric, this was next level. By any metric that I can discern, this was the single weirdest performance (laughs) I'd ever watched. And it, you know, it ranged from like crazy Q&A at the end with reports where he was insisting that he has secret, better data to support his claims of emergency and that, you know, his own secretary, Kristen Nielsen, you know, has done a lame job of supporting his data and strange claims about the Nobel Prize and really strange, a whole lengthy discursion about which cable news figures he loves best of all. It was next level weird, I thought. And I think my coda to all that is at what point do we enable him by just pretending this is a real press conference about a real policy problem to sort of just sit there and act as though this could be any president giving any speech is is deeply disturbing at some level. Well, thank you for raising the question of what part we are playing in normalizing this. Dahlia Lithwick, read her at Slate.com and listen to her on the Amicus podcast. Thank you, Dahlia. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time to talk about how California is leading the fight against Trump to slow climate change and welcome immigrants and refugees. For that, we turn to Manuel Pastor. He's professor of sociology and American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. He currently directs the Program for Environmental and Regional Equity at USC and also USC's Center for the Study of Immigrant Integration. He's a prolific public speaker and writer. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the Huffington Post, the American Prospect, and dozens of other publications. And his most recent book is State of Resistance, What California's Dizzying Descent and Remarkable Resurgence Means for America's Future. Manuel Pastor, welcome to the program. Glad to be with you. Well, you recently wrote an op-ed for the L.A. Times with Pramila Jayapal, the member of Congress from Seattle, who is now co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. She's a hero of ours. Tell us about her and about the piece that you two co-authored, Why is the U.S. So Far Behind on Naturalizing New Citizens? Well, Pramila is a hero of mine as well and uh, someone that I've worked with for years when she was in the state of Washington doing organizing around immigrant rights and immigrant integration. And what we tried to do in the op-ed is point out just how pernicious the Trump administration is in so many different ways. So we tend on the immigration issue to focus in on the uh, desire of the Trump administration to build a border wall, but they've also created a sort of second wall which is the prevention of people uh, becoming citizens who are actually lawful permanent residents who are here. The number of people who have applied for citizenship but not had their application looked at and processed has jumped up from about 350,000 during Obama to about 750,000 under Trump. So that's delaying a lot of people who wanted, for example, to be able to become a citizen and be able to vote in the 2018 midterm elections. While waiting times to become a citizen 
It used to be somewhere between five and six months. They're now averaging about a year. And in some places, it can take you up to two years after you make an application to become a citizen to become a citizen. This is having deep impacts on the level of civic engagement and democracy, and it's another way in which there's so many different acts on the part of the Trump administration that is seeking to disempower immigrant communities and their voice in public policymaking. Well, let's talk about California and Trump. You open your book with a startling historical point. When the United States in 2016 elected Trump, the country was going through the same kind of political moment that California had gone through 22 years earlier in 1994. Please explain. Well, what we like to say in the book is that America is going through its Prop 187 moment. Proposition 187, passed in 1994 by California voters, was the proposition that sought to deny social services and educational services to undocumented immigrants in the state. So it reflected a particular kind of anti-immigrant anxiety hysteria that was occurring in the state of California. But what people forget is that California in the early 1990s experienced half of the country's net job losses and net recession, because the national recession of the early 1990s was about the cutback in defense spending as a result of the end of the Cold War that hit California aerospace hard and basically knocked the props out of the rest of our industrial structure as well. So we experienced half of the country's net job losses in that period. And Rush Limbaugh began his talk radio career in the late 1980s in uh, Sacramento. So that kind of perfect stew of demographic anxiety, economic uncertainty, and profiteering from political polarization, California got there first in the early 1990s. So the interesting question, which we try to explore in the book, is how did the state go from the very kind of low point in terms of uh, community across communities and a sense of unity about what we needed to do about the economy to a state that was one of the first two states to raise its minimum wage to $15 an hour, to a state which has proudly declared itself under something called the California Values Act, that's pretty appropriately named, a sanctuary state in which the police are not supposed to cooperate with immigration and customs enforcement, and a state which, of course, is also leading on addressing climate change and also addressing sort of environmental injustice as part of dealing with climate change. So it's that arc of change from that low point to this kind of more progressive moment that we try to track in the book. And remind us what was in Prop 187 that California passed in 1994, and remind us then what has happened to the Republican Party of California since then. Well, Prop 187 sought to uh, strip away any access to social services to undocumented immigrants. And it also went as far as to try to strike away educational services uh, or education, which is actually uh, against uh, very Supreme Court rulings about uh, equal protection, uh, particularly for children in terms of access to education. So actually most of Prop 187 wound up getting struck down in the courts as being clearly unconstitutional. But, you know, interestingly, Prop 187 was the way in which Governor Pete Wilson, who was uh, facing difficulties 
uh, with his re-election. He was about 20 points behind Kathleen Brown, who was a Democratic candidate, and he decided to latch himself onto this anti-immigrant uh, movement as a way of raising up his numbers, a little bit like how Trump, who was not necessarily doing well in the polls, sort of latched himself onto anti-immigrant sentiment to triumph in 2016. Prop 187, though, was a piece with a number of other propositions uh, passed in the uh, 1990s uh, that political scientist Daniel Hosang, who is currently at Yale, called racial propositions. So it wasn't just going after immigrants. There was an attack on bilingual education. There was an attack on affirmative action. There was a three-strikes law and uh, a law to try juveniles as adults that very much led to rapid incarceration and racially racialized uh, over-incarceration. So it was really a kind of broad attack on the demographic change that was occurring in the state of California and the anxieties that was provoking in long-time white residents. It was something that the Republican Party rode, thinking that it would be something that would help uh, their electoral prospects as it did with Pete Wilson. But it wound up shredding uh, the Republican Party such that the Republican Party in the state of California now is actually the third most popular party. You've got the Democratic Party, then you've got the decline to states, people who are calling themselves formally independent and not registering with either the Democrat or Republican Party, and then finally the Republican Party. The Republican Party does not hold one single statewide office and has not since Arnold Schwarzenegger. The Republican Party finds itself in a super minority because the Democrats are in a super majority, more than 60%, in both the uh, uh, Assembly and the State Senate, and it's very much a kind of decimated party. So I think it's the Republican Party nationwide is trying to see whether or not the idea of following the Trump strategy is a way to resuscitate the party or to kind of permanently marginalize it into a smaller and more steadily shrinking base. That's really what the lesson of California is for Republican Party nationwide. You focused a lot of your research and writing on environmental justice issues involving people of color. What do we know about how people of color view environmental politics? The Trump people, of course, appeal to them by arguing that Republicans want to save the jobs of working class people while the climate movement activists, you know, are uh, upper middle class yuppies who don't care about poor people. That is certainly the political image that's put out there, not only by people who are trying to resist attempts to address climate change, but it's often sometimes the underlying assumptions, even of uh, progressives who uh, are trying to push on climate change, that their main source of support might come from a more educated, white, uh, professional, environmentally conscious, in their view, uh, population. But that's not what the data tell us. For the last 10 years, the Public Policy Institute of California has been asking people about their concerns about climate. And in the most recent poll, which, by the way, is pretty much consistent with the last 10 years of polling, too, about 50% of whites in California say that climate change is a very serious issue that is hurting our economy and quality of life. About 60% of African Americans and Asians say that it's a very serious issue about 70% of Latinos say that it's a very serious issue. Wow. And in fact, what, I mean, really probably what's going on, we seem to think, is that 
for a lot of people of color, particularly given the environmental disparities in terms of exposure, it's not an abstract question about climate change in the future, the you know polar ice caps uh, and you know polar uh, bears. It's really that you associate climate change with the refinery that's in your neighborhood that's polluting and affecting the asthma rates of your children. It's the freeway that's in your neighborhood that's also affecting the air that you breathe, and dealing with climate change is not only going to protect the planet in the long run, but it's going to reduce traffic and reduce pollution from traffic on those roads. So when we think of building an alliance for climate uh, change, we need to make sure that it's also an alliance for climate justice. Manuel Pastor, his op-ed, co-authored by Pramila Jayapal, is at latimes.com. And his new book is State of Resistance, What California's Dizzying Descent and Remarkable Resurgence Means for America's Future. Thank you, Manuel Pastor. Thank you. Pleasure to talk with you. Start Making Sense, the nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.